Other than the fact that we're about to go into August, and in uh, Britain that's known as the silly season, and it also often means that Parliament is not as effectual as, as they might otherwise be, I nevertheless am concerned about some of the parliamentary committees that are being called together and that this could lead to um, some heavy-duty regulation of the press. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, uh, was called away on a client matter and is unable to be with us today. Before we get started, we, of course, would like to thank the sponsors of the program, uh, Clio, the web-based practice management solution, which is available at goclio.com, SunTrust, a company that offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and law firms at suntrust.com slash law, and Firm Manager the practice management uh, application uh, from LexisNexis, available at myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Well, the British tabloid news of the world uh, is no more, having been shut down in the wake of allegations that its reporters repeatedly hacked into individuals' private voicemail and bribed police in order to get inside information. But the paper's closing is by no means the end of the story for media mogul Rupert Murdoch and his global media company, News Corporation. To the contrary, lawyers, lawmakers, law enforcement agencies, among others, are are queuing up on both sides of the pond, uh, subpoenas and lawsuits at the ready. Uh, Just the legal issues alone raised by this scandal are so diverse that it's difficult to know where to begin to discuss them. Uh, on today's program, we're going to begin to uh, to wade into some of the legal issues here uh, w- with guests who who come at this matter from from two very perspectives: one an expert in media law, and the other an expert in anti-corruption law. Uh, let me introduce our guests, uh, and then we'll we'll get into the discussion. Uh, joining us first today is Jane E. Curtley. Jane is the Silha Professor of Media Ethics and Law at the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, where she directs the Silha Center for the Study of Media Ethics and Law. Uh, For many years, Jane was the Executive Director of the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press uh, in Washington, D.C., she, her expertise lies in freedom of information, uh, information privacy, libel, uh, journalist privilege, access to courts, and uh, professional responsibility among news media. Uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Jane Kirtley. Thank you. And joining us also today is Mike Kaler. Uh, Mike is Assistant Professor of Business Law at Butler University in Indianapolis. Uh, Mike's academic work focuses on the intersection of corporate conduct and criminal law, corporate compliance and ethics and international trade and investment. And in particular, he is an expert in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act 
He's testified before Congress about the FCPA, and he writes the blog, FCPA Professor, which can be found at fcpaprofessor.com, uh, and where he's been writing a little bit about uh, the this, this scandal uh, in recent days. Uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Mike. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, Jane, I, I want to start with you, and, and given that your uh, an area of, of your focus is media ethics, uh, what do you make? <laughs> what do you make of what's happening? Uh, what's happened with with the news of the world and, and news corporation in this matter? Well, what's fascinating about this as a, a longtime observer of the British media is that it has taken this long for this kind of information to come to the surface. Um, the media in Britain, as probably most of your listeners know, are, are highly competitive and, and cutthroat, to say the least. And their concepts of legal ethics or journalism ethics are very different, I think it's fair to say, from most mainstream media here in the United States. I mean, there are some quality newspapers there, and of course, The Guardian is the paper that actually broke this scandal through really dogged, old-fashioned journalism. But the reality is that what has come to the fore about uh, the illegal conduct of uh, the reporters, both at the News of the World and other Murdoch properties, including the most prestigious ones like the Times and the Sunday Times, uh, is is really not news for anybody who has been paying any attention to this for a while because as the early as 2009, uh, there were stories about uh, what uh, the News Corp uh, brand was engaging in and what it was not only encouraging, but in some cases basically ordering its reporters to do uh, in terms of intercepting uh, conversations and, and other kinds of activities uh, for the purposes of, uh, frankly, getting a competitive edge. The other thing is that Rupert Murdoch has been a major, major power player uh, through various administrations. Uh, the current scandal is talking about the current Prime Minister, David Cameron, but uh, Rupert Murdoch has been a regular visitor at Number 10 Downing Street for many years, regardless of, of who was Prime Minister. And uh, the last thing, of course, the uh, bribing of uh, police officers uh, at Scotland Yard and so forth that has led to a couple of resignations already, um, is to me, in some respects, uh, even more odious because it's much harder to uh, detect that. The phone hacking scandals did come out as some celebrities and politicians started talking about it, uh, but the bribery is only now coming to the surface. And I have to say that I had not, that that's the part of the story that surprised me. I really didn't realize that it had gotten as high up as it had into Scotland Yard. Uh, I knew that there was some bribery going on, but this level of it was really pretty shocking to me. And the impact that this is likely to have on Murdoch in the long term, a little hard to predict because he is in, he's a survivor, to say the least. But I think uh, the fact that uh, News Corp, News America are starting to sort of look askance at uh, him and, and his uh, son in particular, uh, suggests that there could be some big changes coming down the road as far as uh, um, that particular part of the empire is concerned. Well, uh, as you talk about as you talk about bribing, uh, uh, that uh, is is a good point. I wish to bring Mike Mike into this conversation. I mean, Mike, you're uh, uh, an expert uh, in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Uh, you've written uh, somewhat about the implications uh, of this. Uh, What's your kind of overarching take on on, on the implications uh, for Murdoch and and his uh, his his media empire uh, in terms of the FCPA? 
Yeah, you know, as Jane mentioned, this uh, scandal is rather wide in scope, and there is one component of it, these London police officer payments that uh, do give rise to FCPA exposure uh, for News Corps, as well as uh, potentially any individuals uh, involved who may have participated in the payments, authorized the payments, uh, those sort of things. You know, for starters, uh, just to perhaps walk your listeners, you know, through this, uh, News Corps is a U.S. company, and because it is a U.S. company, the FCPA applies to the company no matter where in the world the conduct may take place. So the fact that these payments to London police officers were strictly made in the U.K. and perhaps even by subsidiary employees is not going to be an impediment to any FCPA enforcement action. Now, traditionally, and the key word here is traditionally, FCPA enforcement actions have focused on payments made to foreign officials to get a foreign government contract. However, really in the last five, seven years, the enforcement agencies have brought a number, a number of FCPA enforcement actions where the payment to a foreign official, in this case a London police officer would clearly be a foreign official, better allows the company to gain a competitive advantage over its competitors and thus obtain or retain business, even if that business is not with a foreign government uh, uh, agency or instrumentality. So that's why these London police officer payments, given the enforcement agency's very consistent and robust enforcement theory on this point, do present some FCPA exposure uh, to News Corps and potentially uh, other employees in the company who may have authorized or participated uh, in some of these payments. One of the uh, interesting developments in this matter, at least over on this side of, of the pond, was was a Wall Street Journal editorial this week. Uh, and, of course, the Wall Street Journal is, is owned by News Corporation, uh, and uh, some have read this editorial as as a defense uh, to some extent uh, of Murdoch uh, in in general terms Mike Mike you wrote about the editorial uh in terms of the the comments uh in it regarding uh, the FCPA and potential uh, news corp's potential liability under the FCPA one of the things that, that you point out on on your blog is is that there is some irony uh, perhaps in, in the sense that this editorial Kind of talks about these payments by the uh, uh, by uh, reporters at, at uh, News of the World to police and, and others uh, is kind of business as usual uh, for the press in in Britain. In, in Jane, you talked about the fact that the different standards <laughs> apply, perhaps, or, or are employed by the press in Britain. Uh, I mean, let me let me ask both of you. I mean, is there any legitimacy to this idea that there is is sort of a different set of standards to uh, how news reporters go about their business uh, in, in different cultures and different countries? Well, well, there's definitely. I mean, that's definitely the case. I mean, I've done a lot of work in other countries, and and the standards are quite different. I mean, there are there are countries where bribery is expected, both bribing of journalists and by journalists. That doesn't make it legal, though. And um, the fact that in Britain there has been this culture of 
permissing, uh, being very permissible about these kinds of things doesn't mean that they aren't illegal or that uh, given, uh, you know, enough uh, head that the, the police would not pursue an investigation. The problem, of course, is that in the case of the phone hacking scandal, the evidence that's coming out now is that essentially the police were uh, persuaded not to go forward with the investigations when, the, again, the law had clearly been broken. So I think um, in many respects, it's not so much that Britain doesn't have adequate laws, at least as far as phone hacking and bribery is concerned, as much as it is that they have not been enforced to date. And um, the thing that I did agree about when I read the Wall Street Journal editorial myself was that um, there is always the risk that, as often happens in scandals like these, that Parliament will decide to enact a bunch of new laws that may be even less enforceable and may provide uh, more of a challenge to preserving press freedom. Britain, of course, does not have a First Amendment. They don't have a written constitution. They have a tradition of, of, a, of a free and vigorous press. But uh, it's really only one uh, law uh, away from being obliterated if Parliament gets its act together. And I think, ironically, the demise, if, if you will, of, of, the, of News Corporation could actually uh, make it easier for Parliament to move forward because what's happened historically is that when Parliament was ready to pass privacy laws, for example, somebody from one of the News Corp papers would do a big expose on the members of Parliament that were sponsoring it, um, making the argument that these privacy laws were just to protect those people's corruption, and the laws would go away, the bills would go away. Um, with News Corp rapidly becoming emasculated here, it's probably less likely that that's going to happen. So as somebody who believes in freedom of the press, not illegal journalistic activities, but freedom of the press, I do worry about the, the fallout from that as uh, Parliament responds to the understandable public outcry against what has been revealed about what Murdoch's folks have done. Yeah, not surprisingly, I was um, interested in the FCPA component of the Wall Street Journal's rather wide-ranging uh, editorial. And the um, rather unsophisticated conclusion to the editorial that others are perhaps doing this, you know, that is uh, uh, an argument that could be made in nearly every FCPA enforcement action that has ever been brought. But just because, you know, others may be speeding on the highway is no defense when you're caught going 80 miles an hour, and it's not going to be very persuasive uh, in this context either. Industry sweeps is a term of art that has come to be known in FCPA enforcement land over the last couple of years. There has been an industry sweep of the oil and gas industry. There's currently an industry sweep going on regarding the pharmaceutical industry and the financial services industry. Um, you know, I wrote on my blog, it's going to be interesting with the Wall Street Journal's comments that this is common with British tabloids and indeed common even here in the United States, which doesn't so much raise an FCPA issue, um, whether there's you know, going to be an industry sweep here uh, of the media industry. You know, the Department of Justice and the SEC are very keen to use one enforcement action as sort of a point of entry uh, into a, a whole new industry. So it's going to be you know, very interesting to, to see um, whether uh, any potential News Corps enforcement action is just one of perhaps several other that may, um, you know, uh, be targeted here as well. 
And, and just one other point, um, you know, I, I know the Wall Street Journal and others are, are raising a, a First Amendment type issue here. And, and as a blogger, I, I cherish my First Amendment rights as, as most everyone does. But let's not forget, this is a media company whose product is information. So when a media company is paying police officers to receive non-public information that then best allows them to sell newspapers, I've made the analogy that it's really no different than an oil and gas company making bribe payments to a foreign official to find out where the oil and gas reserves are located in that country. In the latter instance, we would clearly see a business nexus associated with that bribe payment, and that's why I believe, given what is known about these London police officer payments, there is a very clear business nexus to this conduct. Well, we saw Murdoch and, and his son uh, testifying in Parliament this week. Uh, the United States Congress has is, is talked about opening hearings on this. And it's interesting to me uh, listening to the, the two of you coming at this from dear, very different perspectives, but I, I seem to be hearing both of you saying that 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 you both see the a potential danger here that that uh, any legislative action uh, could result in in a cure that's perhaps worse than the disease uh, if it results in a you know in some attempt to to regulate uh, the freedom of the press or the operation of the press uh, jane do you see that as as a danger here in the united states well i mean again we we have at least the first amendment in place which presumably will avoid some of the things they've been talking about doing in britain such as you know trying to enforce essentially a fairness doctrine in the print media i mean that that could not happen in the United States because we have Supreme Court precedent that prohibits that sort of thing. Um, and again, I think existing laws, uh, journalists don't get a, spe- a special pass from laws on phone hacking, for example. Existing laws could be enforced against any instances of, if this has occurred in the United States. So my argument would be that at least here, there, there would be, at least based on what we know now, there would be no need for any kind of new legislation and some of the things that have been loosely talked about probably wouldn't withstand constitutional scrutiny. In Britain, it's a different situation, not because they don't have adequate laws in place, because I think to a large extent they do, but because they don't have a First Amendment prohibition against the kind of legislative, what I would consider to be excesses, that some of the more you know angry people in Parliament are, are talking about. So um, other than the fact that we're about to go into August, and in uh, Britain that's known as the silly season, and it also often means that Parliament is is not as effectual as, as they might otherwise be. I nevertheless am concerned about some of the parliamentary committees that are being called together and that this could lead to um, some heavy-duty regulation of the press. And again, in Britain, there's a long tradition of, of solid investigative journalism. I think the Guardian's work on this uh, scandal in particular has demonstrated that, and I would hate to see them reined in by uh, inadvisable uh, legislation. Just to follow up on that, before I hear from Mike on that, what about uh, efforts here to enact a, a federal shield law? Does 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 this kind of misconduct by journalists anywhere in the world that happens to take place uh, dampen uh, efforts to bring a to enact a shield law in the United States? Well, it, it sure doesn't help it any, and I think the problem, of course, is the shield law has sort of been 
uh, dead in the water for about a year now, and in large part this has been because of the whole WikiLeaks Julian Assange matter. And I, I, I don't want to draw too close a comparison between the two, although I think the Wall Street Journal made reference to it in its editorial, but I think the point is that in, in both the, the phone hacking and bribery scandals and in the case involving Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, in both instances journalists are getting access to information to which they have no legal right. And there are people in Congress who have very strong feelings about that kind of conduct, and certainly the more examples of this that come forward, the less likely it is that a shield law would be enacted. Mike, what about you on this this sort of this question of whether I guess the, these sort of these sort of bad facts could lead to bad laws, uh, w- whether regard to freedom of the press or or regulation of the news industry in, in some other way? I don't see a legislative response here in the United States as to the News Corps issue, particularly. Again, just speaking from an FCPA perspective. You know, the FCPA does and always has had a kind of national security exception, and there have been some FCPA enforcement actions that have been sort of aborted or not aggressively pursued in the past because of national security concerns. The the potential, though, legislative fallout is there has been a very robust movement over the last nine months here in the United States for potential FCPA reform legislation. The Senate held a hearing in November. The House held a hearing in June in which there appeared to be bipartisan support for at least certain FCPA reform proposals. Now, anytime there's a scandal involving a well-known company, that can, whether it should or not, can potentially derail legislative initiatives. Now, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, because it is called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, is and always has been a very difficult statute to amend from a political standpoint, and it is possible that these FCPA reform efforts that have been gaining steam over the last few months uh, may you know, fall, fall back uh, uh, in the legislative uh, priority list here. All right, we're going to uh, take a short break. Stay with us, and we'll be back in just a, a few moments to talk more about media scandal in Britain and its uh, impact in the United States. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the role of security in cloud computing. Jack, what about security? Are there any ethical or security-related concerns that need to be addressed with cloud computing? We're starting to see the first ethics opinions come out on cloud computing, and the early proposed ethics opinions like that from the North Carolina State Bar indicate that there are no ethical issues relating to the use of cloud computing in a law firm, but that as with the use of any third-party provider, an appropriate amount of due diligence needs to be undertaken to verify that the provider you're using has implemented an adequate level of security and privacy precautions and is essentially taking due care with your confidential client data. We've been talking to Jack Newton president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. 
SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and wading through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com slash legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Thanks for tuning into our program today. We want to let you know about something extraordinary happening in the legal industry. Right now, hundreds of independent attorneys just like yourself are working to bring a very special product to market. These attorneys are part of a development program at LexisNexis, and they are working under NDA on a brand new application that will change the way you run your practice. This solution, LexisNexis Firm Manager, is a web-based, highly secure application operating in SAS 70 Type 2 attested data centers. If you are interested in test driving LexisNexis Firm Manager at no charge, or to learn more, visit www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Need to reach lawyers on the go? Try marketing with new media here on Legal Talk Network. We can start the conversation for you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and shoot us an email or call us at 781-551-9960. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is away this week. We're joined by Professor Mike Kaler, uh, uh, Assistant Professor of Business Law at Butler University in Indianapolis. Uh, and by Jane Kirtley, the Silha Professor of Media Ethics and Law at the School of Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Minnesota. Uh, Mike, I, I know that uh, the, the UK uh, recently enacted its own uh, FCPA uh, law of, of a sort, uh, not exactly the same as the United States law. Uh, does this, uh, does the UK law play into this at all? Is any of this covered under the UK law? Does it relate to what's going on there? Or does the fact that this is taking place uh, within the United Kingdom mean that that law would not apply here? Uh, The short answer is no. There has been some commentary that the United States enforcement authorities will stand down here because the UK has an effective and robust bribery law. Today they do. The UK Bribery Act went live on July 1st. However, that law is prospective only. It only applies to conduct after July 1st, 2011. So the Bribery Act, which in some respects is much broader than the FCPA, is not applicable to these London police officer payments that were allegedly made um, a number of years ago. Prior to the UK Bribery Act, though, the UK sort of had a hodgepodge of old, antiquated bribery and corruption statutes that could potentially be relevant here. However, the problem with those pre-Bribery Act laws is that the prosecuting authorities had to establish, in order to prosecute, a so-called controlling mind 
i.e. a high-level executive or a board member that participated in or authorized the payments at issue. And we've seen time and time again how that old law was ineffective in the UK and is one of the reasons, in fact, for why Britain passed this bribery act that went live some three weeks ago. So the short answer, I guess, is no, I don't think that the UK, given the time period relevant to this conduct, had effective bribery and corruption statutes, unless, of course, it can be proven that a controlling mind of the corporate was somehow involved in the conduct. Because the U.S. legal standard is completely different. A corporation like News Corp can face legal liability, including FCPA exposure, based upon the acts of any of its employees to the extent that conduct was uh, uh, done in the scope of their employment and intended to benefit, at least in part, the company. There are uh, at least some allegations that, that some of this conduct might have might have taken place or, or had an impact uh, here in the United States. Uh, some suggestion that that perhaps some Hollywood uh, celebrities might have had their their voicemail hacked into. Uh, there's been uh, some allegations that perhaps uh, the families of 911 victims had voicemail uh, hacked into. Uh, there's been talk about the FBI. Uh, Conducting an investigation, as I mentioned earlier, there's been some talk about Congress looking into this. Jane, do you see any other uh, legal implications for for media outlets in the United States? Not just not just those owned by Murdoch, but but more generally. Well, again, I, I think it's important to emphasize that as a general proposition, the idea of bribing officials, uh, police officers, or hacking into telephones is really not a normal and accepted practice here in the United States among mainstream journalists. And I, some of your listeners may recall a case quite a number of years ago involving a journalist at a Cincinnati newspaper who had managed to obtain a way to hack into voicemail at uh, Chiquita Bananas uh, operations in Cincinnati. And this became a, a huge cause celeb uh, among uh, journalists uh, and became uh, you know, highly criticized among the news media. Uh, the people involved, the journalists involved, uh, were criminally charged. I guess my point would be that, as I've said before, it seems to me that um, we have existing laws in place, and whether it's ethics or whether it's just the force of the law, I think that's been a deterrent to the kind of, of hacking that uh, is pretty commonplace in Britain. There also was a U.S. Supreme Court decision a few years ago, not involving direct hacking by journalists, but where a news organization had obtained uh, a uh, a telephone uh, conversation tape that had been hacked by a third party. And essentially what the Supreme Court said was that as long as the journalist had nothing to do with the hacking and as long as the tape contained matters of public concern, that um, it would be uh, protected by the First Amendment for journalists to go ahead and, and use that material. But those are important caveats, both the importance, the matter of public concern, and again, the fact that the journalists themselves were not involved in the illegal act. And so the question really will be, whether uh, journalists from any news operations are actually doing the hacking or whether they're simply the third-party recipients of information obtained illegally that they had no reason to know was illegally obtained. 
I, I hear what you're saying, and, and I understand that it, it's it's illegal, and, and yet uh, my my perception is that there are uh, at least some legislators and, and some other uh, government policymakers who who aren't really able to distinguish between perhaps uh, legitimate journalist journalistic activities and, and and those that are are clearly uh, unlawful and unethical, and, and that uh, among some of them, there, there's greater concern. There's this sort of sense that that uh, we live in a world now where there are, you know, journalism consists of a bunch of loose cannons running around in the form of bloggers and, and tweeters and, and whatever else, and that uh, there's perhaps a, a greater need already to to regulate or, or somehow uh, rein in uh, uh, the activities of some of these people. I, I'm not saying they're right, but I'm saying I'm I'm hearing some of that uh, certainly from some of the officials uh, uh, in my neck of the woods. Well, and, uh, and and that is absolutely correct. And I think with various things that have occurred in the last couple of years, I, I mean, I'm thinking of the undercover tapes that were shot by various activist groups. Um, you know, sometimes going after a Michelle Bachman, sometimes going after uh, groups that are supposedly sympathetic to the Obama administration. I mean. It's, it's an equal opportunity technique to use hidden cameras and hidden microphones, which is illegal in some states, legal in others, um, as for, for quote-unquote news gathering, although, again, it's news gathering with a, uh, an agenda. And I think that, that this reaction is a perfectly normal and expected reaction from the part of Congress. But as I said, fortunately, <laughs> the First Amendment is really going to preclude at least uh, laws like that being upheld in the long run if they are aimed at creating special rules of responsibility for journalists that don't apply to everybody else. Laws of general applicability applying to the press, that's not a problem as long as there's no clear impeding of the First Amendment uh, purposes, but uh, to create special laws that would attempt to regulate and define who journalists are, I think would, would pretty clearly run afoul of the First Amendment. All right. Well, on that point, I'm afraid we're running low on time. And before we do conclude the program, I want to give each of you an opportunity to offer your closing thoughts to our listeners uh, and also uh, let our listeners know how they can find out more about you and follow up with you if they'd like to do that. Uh, so, uh, Mike Kaler, let's start with you. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm focused on the FCPA angle of the story. And, you know, there have been published reports already that part of the FBI's investigation is an FCPA component. So there's clearly an inquiry going on. Um, I think it's very likely, though, that this gray cloud will be hanging over News Corp for some time. Uh, a typical FCPA enforcement action really takes a number of years, anywhere from two to four years on average. And that's because the where else question is often asked. Once the enforcement agencies are comfortable with the London police officer payments that gave rise to this inquiry in the first place, it's very likely for them to ask the where else question. Okay, News Corp, your employees in the UK were doing this. How do we know that your other employees all over the world were not making similar payments? Next thing you know, there's a targeted worldwide review that the company uh, is undertaking. And oftentimes that can lead to other instances of improper conduct. So from an FCPA perspective, I think this is going to uh, last a while. So uh, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I do run a blog called FCPA Professor. Uh, just last week, I uh, have a new and improved look to it, and it can be found at uh, www.fcpaprofessor.com. 
a very much a very nicely improved uh, look. I, I would add, uh, having being a, a regular reader of your blog, I enjoy it very much. Uh, Jane, currently, uh, your final thoughts? Well, I guess I, I would simply say this: that uh, this Murdoch story is uh, something that is not going to go away anytime soon. It's going to be difficult, I think, to uh, draw distinctions between sort of the political reaction uh, from Murdoch's enemies, who are many and varied, and the absolutely justifiable reaction about uh, the breaking of law. And I think in journalism circles, these are going to be case studies for a very long time, both here in the United States and in in Great Britain. It's certainly something that that we're following here at the center that I I direct here at the University of Minnesota. It's called the Scylla Center for the Study of Media, Ethics, and Law. We have a website, which is www.silha.umn.edu, and um, I would invite your listeners to uh, check us out. We have a uh, three-times-a-year bulletin that we publish on legal and ethical issues involving the media, and we're certainly going to be covering this story there for some time to come. Well, thanks so much to both of you. We've been honored to have you on the program Uh, That about does it for this week's show. We'd like to remind our listeners that uh, all of our past episodes uh, going on close to six years right now uh, are available in the uh, podcast library on iTunes and at LegalTalkNetwork.com. And remember that you can now get CLE credit through the West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on the West Legal Ed Center logo you find there. And uh, thanks to all the great people at the Legal Talk Network who produce uh, this show and make it happen every week. We'll be back next week with another Legal Affairs podcast. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.